Nurture, Episode 2, Family Compasses Together for Success, an autism treatment program that uses the idea of contextual thinking to help children interact and communicate more robustly. Welcome to Nurture, an early childhood development podcast, bringing you multiple perspectives on the development of young children and their families, best practices for early childhood professionals, and where parents and all kinds of families are welcome. I am Mark Gardner, host of the show. I am a clinical social worker, and my specialty is early childhood mental health. I work as a psychotherapist with young children and their families, and as a mental health consultant to a number of child care and preschool programs in the Washington, D.C. area. On today's show, I will be talking to Dr. Moshe Stuhl and Mr. Joshua Metz from Family Compass, a psychological services organization in Reston, Virginia. We will be talking about their intervention program for autism called Together for Success, and we will discuss a number of specific techniques that can be used with children with autism by their parents, teachers, or other caregivers that are based on an idea called contextual thinking. As Dr. Stuhl puts it, contextual thinking is basically the ability to have something in mind and then to change it. This allows people to be flexible, adaptable, improvisational, and creative in their thinking and interactions, something that is very hard for people with autism to do. As interaction and relationship experts for young children with autism, they specialize on how to help them have more and better interactions with the people in their lives. In the Together for Success program, they train parents and other caregivers to be more effective at interacting successfully with their child. Drawn from play and relationship-based models, such as DIR floor time, as well as on a large body of early childhood developmental research on how babies learn how to interact and relate to their caregivers, they teach parents how to interact with their child in ways that grow the child's and parents' interaction skills. With lots of coaching and practice, they see families make wonderful progress. In this episode, they describe how to follow a child's lead, or how to join in play or interaction, even if what the child is doing doesn't look like play. Dr. Stuhl and Mr. Metz leverage children with autism's abilities to notice changes in sound and movement to bolster interactions. You'll hear them demonstrate how pairing a sound with a hand movement can get a child's attention and lead to more back-and-forth interactions. They discuss how to dial up or dial down the expectations for the amount of and quality of responses from a child, adjusting what they call the contextual load of interactions in order to get in sync and help a child progress. Also, they'll demonstrate how to interfere with what a child is doing in a playful way, using what they call playful obstructions. These strategies can also be used by parents and caregivers to improve their actions with all children. And since they emphasize gestural and non-language-based modalities of interacting, these also can be especially helpful when interacting with children who are less verbal or are shyer and less willing to speak. I've heard them talk about these ideas a number of times, and I'm excited to get a chance to discuss these in more detail with them. 
If you'd like more information about the topics in this show, please go to nurturepodcast.com backslash episode two. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Stuhl and Mr. Metz at Family Compass, please go to familycompass.com. I hope you enjoy the show. So, welcome to the Nurture Podcast. I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you all today. Um, so, why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are and where you work? Why don't you go first, Dr. Stuhl? Uh, my name is, uh, my first name is Moshe. My last name is Stuhl. I'm the director of Family Compass in Western Virginia, as you said. Uh, and Josh and I uh, are working with the, uh, one of our programs is the Together for Success program, which is a program for toddlers and preschoolers with autism, with an emphasis on working or coaching parents and other caregivers uh, in ways that uh, can facilitate the child's uh, development. And I'm Josh Metz. I'm, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And as Moshe said, I'm working in the Together for Success program. I'm with the young children um, with autism or related developmental disorders. Okay. And how long has uh, Together for Success been in existence? Well, let's see. It's 2015 now. Uh, probably about seven years, seven to eight years. Yeah, as, as a Together for Success program, seven years. But um, I, I've been working with kids, uh, young kids with autism for 20 years. Mm. Great. So um, I understand uh, that you all uh, have developed a model called the Reston model to help children with autism. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Well, uh, my own education uh, in terms of early, early intervention with kids with autism uh, was primarily through the what's called the DIR program. Uh, I used to be on the faculty of, the, of ICDL, ICDL which is an organization that primarily uh, 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 its main mission is to uh, support and develop uh, interventions for young children. Uh, over the years, uh, while working with Josh, we, uh, we, we included new elements in this framework of the uh, DIR. And over time, we realized that we have a somewhat uh, different framework to offer that we find to be quite uh, helpful uh, in thinking about how to help uh, children with autism. Mm, okay. And, yeah. and, and to add a little bit to that, a, sure. a main focus of our work is really trying to work directly with the family itself, but also the, the child and the individual needs of the child. And what we found as we were um, working with families, um, we began to veer off, say, one particular modality or invention. We'd be doing floor time, but then we'd, be, we'd find we'd be doing things that were working, that were eliciting the response we wanted um, from the child, but it wasn't really floor time. It seemed to be more of a behavioral approach. And we said, well, well, wait a second. Are we, are we purists in terms of one modality, or can we borrow from others? And certainly the latter was, uh, was a resounding yes, that yes, we should borrow because that would seem to be working. But another big part of it was we're working with parents directly and we're coaching and training parents to use techniques. Now, we might be very comfortable using one technique, but what if the parent isn't comfortable using that technique, but they are another technique? So we found we were also trying to identify the things that would help the child, but we also had to identify the techniques or approaches that really resonated with the parents and primary caregivers. So as we then we began to branch out and beg and borrow from different um, intervention and modalities to fit the individual child but also the individual family. And, and 
And beyond adopting things from different approaches for intervention, um, it was quite uh, enlightening to learn about uh, basic research on autism, not on autism intervention, but on autism. Uh, because when we intervene, the question is, what roadmap, roadmap do we have? Mm. How do we understand autism? And over the years, we, uh, uh, we found uh, literature primarily from Europe Uh, that offered us new ways to think about uh, the core challenge uh, with kids with autism and helped us think about uh, what we want to do in order to help these children. And that is, in a nutshell, uh, this is the idea that contextual thinking is a primary uh, core challenge uh, or characteristic of children with autism. Yes, and um, I wanted to uh, hear a little bit more about what some of the research was or some of the books that you read that uh, helped you kind of come to that understanding uh, of contextual understanding as a core deficit. Can you say a little bit about that? Uh, the main, uh, the, the most direct uh, book is a book called uh, Autism as Contextual Thinking. Um, Autism is Context Blindness. Autism is Context Blindness. Now, we don't like the word blindness because it assumes no ability. Uh, but rather, we like to think about it as inefficiency. And in a nutshell, uh, the idea there, the take from other uh, uh, researchers as well, primarily Uta Frith in, uh, uh, in, in London, uh, the idea is that every, every action, often when we think about, for example, communication, and communication is one of the main Uh, challenges uh, in autism, we think uh, about uh, receptive language and we think about expressive language. But as it turns out, the, the core challenge of children with autism is not necessarily just the expressive or just the receptive, but it is the ability to maintain reciprocity of ideas. So in other words, if one person says something and another person says another thing and then the first person says something, this is reciprocity. And the challenge is, the main challenge is not just receptive language or expressive language, though kids with autism often have difficulties with this as well, but it is in the ability to assimilate new input. And based on this input of what you say to me, for example, I need to come up with a response. This response is not, uh, it's not like there is right or wrong response, but rather Uh, there is a response that is in context or not in context. So, for example, if I tell you uh, it is a, quite a cold day today, how are you going to respond to me? First, you need to understand what I say, and that would be the receptive language. But even if you have good expressive language abilities, the process of knowing how to respond to this simple sentence is quite complex because it depends on what I said, it depends on how I said it, it depends on uh, what is our relationship, it depends on many, many, many things. Uh, so this is a very complex process, brain process, of going everywhere in the brain, and based on that, you might say, oh yeah, it is very cold. Sounds very simple. It is very simple, but the process of responding in context is very complex. And this process is where we believe is the essence of the challenge of children with autism. 
Can you give uh, the audience a little another example that they might be able to relate to? Um, and I've heard you use these in some of your talks uh, of how to help sure. people understand yeah. this idea of contextual thinking. Let's take first, uh, say, an older child who um, has verbal language, who has the ability to have a, a, a back and forth exchange verbally with, with a person. Um, and this person, this young person has been taught to say, hello, how are you? When he greets people and he's really good at it. And that's a, that's a useful tool for him to use because he, he likes people. It genuinely wants to get to know people. So you, you could imagine a people coming over to his home and they arrive at the door and he goes to each and every one of them and says, hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? And then he turns and leaves. Now, the context was people arrived and people are expecting a greeting and that's what you do. People have come into your home. So he did that. He did greet them. But then he turned and left. You see, all he, all he knew how to do was to say, hello, how are you? What he wasn't taught to do or was it, what didn't happen in terms of his contextual thinking was to wait for a response back from the first person or the second person or when he was done to pause and see what happens next. He simply read his script and then he turned and left. So although he did technically greet the people, you could see in the context of what happened there, it was off. There was something missing. So it was the beginning of a conversation, but the question is how to continue the conversation. And here you cannot trust or rely just on rote. Uh, another example of a child uh, is, a ch is a child uh, with, that is very hard to engage. Think about the two-year-old that, you know, the parents call uh, her name and she doesn't respond. And the parents try to do, to get all, to do all kinds of things. It might uh, uh, increase the volume of calling the name. They might uh, try really hard and the child doesn't respond. Or the child is uh, playing with blocks, let's say, and they just... Uh, uh, kind of in a self-absorbed manner, and they build uh, uh, st stacks of, of Legos. So this child seemed to be engaging pretty well in a self-absorbed uh, uh, action that does not require contextual thinking, and contextual thinking defined as getting the input from another person and doing something with it. Now, here we don't talk necessarily on about talking, so if you, you typically when you go to a little child and let's say you make a funny face, they might make a funny face back or, or they might giggle and they look at you and don't look at you. And there is a, and there is a back and forth exchange that in, in, in the language we use, this, this, this is an example of contextual thinking because the child giggles in the context of what you do. And then the, you, you respond to that and then the child responds to your response. And this is contextual thinking. So that's another example of a child that can be exploring the environment very well. And some of the kids we work with are excellent explorers. But when it comes to incorporating uh, input from others and responding to, to others, that's so difficult for them. And indeed, the definition of autism is difficulty communicating as we're basically having a back and forth that by its nature needs to be contextual and a tendency for uh, repetitive behaviors, doing the same thing again and again. Like this child was doing or saying, hello, how are you? This child said it in the right context because he was taught to do that, but there is a tendency to use certain things again and again, because if the route of responding in context is not that available to you, you just memorize things and you repeat them again and again. 
So in, in, an example of repetition of a young child uh, with autism, a young child might stack uh, 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 blocks many, for many, many, many times because this action is available to this child. What's not available is the ability to improvise based on what's going on in the environment mm -hmm. because improvisation by definition is responding in context to what's going on in the environment in terms, primarily in terms of people's responses, people, uh, gestures, people, words, mm -hmm. people's mm -hmm. words, nonverbal communication, nonverbal and verbal mm. and, and all sorts of communications. Mm -hmm. And we've, and we've just used a lot of different words. We've used uh, incorporating the actions of others. We've used reciprocity. We've used back and forth. Now, context we use specifically. Before we found the book, con context is, or autism is con context blindness, we were using the word context a lot in a very specific way. The, the root of the word context, um, the meaning of context from the Latin is contextere, context, textere. And that means to weave together. And when we found that, we were actually together with a family in session and using the word context a lot. And finally, I thought to myself, well, context, context. Can I be sure that this family understands the word context like I do? So I went to my phone and I went to my dictionary and I looked up the origin of the word context and found that it means to weave together. And that's exactly what we're talking about. The parent and child weaving together an interaction. The child stacks blocks. Well, those are the child's threads. But when the parent hands the child a block, well, the child's thread is there, but then the parent's sort of handing the block is there. The child takes it. That's another thread. And then the parent hands another block. That's another thread and back and forth. And before you know it, you're having this tapestry of togetherness that's being created. So we realize that context is the right word to use and the right concept that we wanted to um, frame in terms of the work we're doing with families. And it is very interesting that when you look at child development research, not in regard to autism, uh, even though the word con contextual thinking is not used that much, but the same ideas are central for uh, child development research for the last 30 or 40 years. But for some reason, when it comes to autism, and autism intervention specifically, it's not. It doesn't seem to be a part of the uh, general repertoire that is used in talking about kids with autism. There's a lot of research about the importance of early uh, back and forth with an infant and how this uh, develops into a more complex uh, interaction and how uh, emotional regulation uh, or the ability to calm oneself comes. Uh, becomes uh, possible through this back and forth interaction. So these are things that are not new in the field of child development. For some reason, uh, it was not part. It it is it has not it has not been a part of the discussion in regard to uh, early uh, autism intervention. So along the lines of uh, helping children and people understand this concept of conceptual thinking, you also have an idea of what you call contextual load. Can, um, can you give a few examples or even maybe demonstrate a little bit in conversation, some ide different ideas of uh, contextual load? Contextual load. So, so, okay. So we obviously, uh, we want to help kids be able to have uh, to 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 improve their, their their to improve their efficiency with contextual thinking, uh, 
which might mean different things for different kids. Depends where they are. For a child who is nonverbal and not, uh, and self-absorbed, if we can play, uh, if we can develop uh, in, in interactions with them in which we react to each other, chase each other, run away, and look at each other, you know, the kind of fun thing you would do with a young child, that would be contextual thinking. Uh, uh, if it's uh, for a child that is verbal, is to have more of an actual conversation of back and forth, etc. So we want them to do that, but obviously this is the core challenge that they have. On the one hand, we know if we are able to do that, like anything else in life, the more you practice, the better you get uh, in doing this. So we are, uh, we, we are passionately looking for ways to engage kids uh, with this kind of back and forth interaction. But... That's hard for them. So, so we have kind of a vicious cycle that the child that has difficulties with uh, reciprocity or in con- with contextual thinking, with communication, does not get the opportunity to practice it because of this biologically constitutional challenge to start with. And because they don't get the practice, obviously they can't develop it enough. So the question is, how do we go about overcoming this challenge? And one of the main ideas about that is that we enable the children to participate in back and forth interactions wherever they are, but just a little bit uh, above where they are right now so they can practice this back and forth. And for that, we learned that one of the important uh, ingredients is dialing up and dialing down the contextual load. So um, maybe I'll start with a uh, dialing up, and Josh, you can give an example of dialing mm-hmm. down. Uh, so dialing up, meaning giving the oppor- when we dial up, it's just the idea is you give an opportunity for the child to uh, respond in context. Because, you know, let me mention just that uh, intuitively, when we interact with children with autism, we tend to make it easier for them, for example, by asking them lots of questions. So think about the the contextual load. If I ask you, uh, what color is your shirt? Now, versus if I say to you, I love your shirt. If I tell you, if I ask you what color is your shirt, typically for kids with autism is much easier to answer because assuming they, of course, they have their verbal abilities because the answer, there's only one answer. And the child knows where to look for the answer by looking at the shirt and tell you, telling you the color of the shirt. Now, but if I tell you, I love your shirt, how do you respond to that? This is a much more contextual kind of, 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 of uh, communication. Uh, you need to, you know, if, sometimes we use rote and say thank you. Uh, but sometimes I might say, oh, I bought it, uh, I bought it at Costco. Or, or th- there's no right answer. And to get to the in-context appropriate answer, it, it takes this, lo- this uh, complex process that is hard for children with autism uh, to make. So one of the things uh, that we often teach parents uh, of children that have some verbal abilities is to have some kind of a, kind of a diet of asking questions and instead making statements. And when we do that, we dial up the contextual demands. Because, again, because if I ask you a question, the answer requires less. So if I, if I make a statement, your brain needs to look at all the, ver- the relevant variables and then come up 
with a response in that context. So that, that this is an example of dialing up in order to enable the child to uh, to 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 participate in a more uh, demanding but not too demanding situation where there is uh, the need for contextual uh, thinking. But sometimes we need to dial it down in order to enable the child to be able to respond. And that's an uh, important piece because we want the difficulty uh, of the uh, communication to be just where the child is. So sometimes we're just doing dial down and maybe mm-hmm. just... Sure. And it, because what, what we're looking for is we're looking to provide the child the opportunity to do this contextual thinking, to infer what's meant by... I love your shirt because that's what's being asked. I'm asking you to infer from my statement what I could be, what I could mean about your shirt or about you or, or whatever it is. So we want the process of that contextual thinking to occur, not the end product of the actual, the child actually saying something in context. That's the end game. Ultimately, that's what we want. But in order to get there, if that contextual thinking is, is weak, we need to strengthen it. That takes practice. So we're always looking for the process. And very often parents come. Um, with their children to us with a lot of habits in place where they're asking them direct questions, close any questions because they get a response from their child and boy, that's what they want. They all, my, my child responds to me. So I ask, what color is that? What color is that? What shape is that? Cause I get a response. When I don't, I don't get a response. So we then teach their parents, okay, what we want to try to do is start at a very high level, very high and almost you think we, there's no way the child will be able to respond. Okay, that's the, that's the start. But if we do it right, we can always add support, reduce the contextual load by adding more scaffolding. And it would look something like this. It's time to go outside and little Johnny needs his shoes. Now, typically the dad would say, Johnny, get your shoes. Johnny, put your shoes on, right? And that's a direct statement and Johnny will go get it. So instead we say, when it's time to go out, you say, Johnny, it's time to go out. That's it. Now, Johnny doesn't have any shoes on. What will Johnny do? Will he go get his shoes because he realizes, oh, I need my shoes on? Wonderful. That was contextual thinking. But maybe Johnny's not ready for that, so he doesn't know what to do. So dad waits. Johnny doesn't respond. So then dad points with a big gesture at the shoes on the floor. Johnny! And he points to the shoes. Now, he never said, go get your shoes, but he now pointed. Well, Johnny put together, dad got my attention, and he's pointing at my shoes. I need to put my shoes on in in order to go outside. Johnny doesn't do it yet. So then dad does it again. Johnny, your shoes. And then Johnny goes over. So we start way out here. My arms are, are way out by saying, Johnny, time to go outside. He doesn't get it. Pointing to his shoes. Johnny doesn't get it. Johnny, your shoes. Oh, that's where it is. Because I didn't say get your shoes. I just said, made the statement, your shoes. Johnny then made that inference. So in that way, we can use statements or open-ended questions and we can modify them as needed given what the situation is to find that sweet spot. Where is the child in terms of their contextual thinking? So the benefit of starting at the high level is because we want to stretch that child's ability and we don't want to assume Mm -hmm. that they're not there. Right. Just like Moshe said, we always want to start a little bit above the child's uh, abilities to challenge them a little bit. So we make that statement. And as I often tell parents, when we're doing this type of work, when we're learning how to go on this question-free diet and make more statements and comments versus questions, I often say there's no success like failure. Meaning if we're failing a lot more than succeeding, then we're in that zone. We're in that zone of development where we want to be because we're really challenging the process of contextual thinking. If we're succeeding too much, it's too easy. 
and the contextual load is too low. If we're failing, way too high the contextual load. So we need to we need to balance it out. But we're looking for more failure than success when we're learning how to do this and when we're teaching parents how to do it. Another example of uh, dialing down is sometimes the, that our our um, aim is very modest, and modest is is good because it's dialing down and it enables the child to succeed. So I'll give you an example of the child that uh, uh, building self, in a self-absorbed manner builds uh, a, a tower of Legos. And you try to interact with the child, the child totally ignores you. If you bother them too much, they might turn away from you and keep doing the same thing. So this child does not get at this moment any practice of contextual thinking, of responding in context, because the child is so totally self-directed. So, and we know that we tried all kinds of things and the child does not respond to us. So an example of, uh, uh, of dialing down is to have modest, modest expectations. So let's say we sit uh, opposite the child and we take some blocks and we build the same way the child builds. Now, not much is happening. But let's say the child, you know, we see that the child noticed us. And over time, it seems that it's, it's a clear presence in the child's mind that we are building with them. They don't interact directly with us. And I'm talking about a kid that is very hard to engage. But you see, at this moment, even though the child does not respond directly to us, the child recognizes that we are with them. So our actions have some influence on the child's, uh, uh, on the child's actions. Then we might want to dial it up a little bit. So let's say, and remember, the child uh, is very hard to engage. So let's say we become the block handers. We hand a block to the child. The child takes it and put it up. Whoop, up. We'll talk about the hoop in a minute, but the hoop is important here. So we hand another one. And another one. Now we have a new activity where we are clear partners. Now, the behavior is very simple. It's very repetitive, but it is still with a clear uh, recognition or with a clear participation, even though it is a repetitive participation and simple, but that's what makes it dialing down. That's what makes it possible. And then we might say, and it works, and maybe the child enjoys it and, and, and something is cooking here. Then we might become uh, a little bit more uh, greedy or we want more. And then we might, so, so it becomes uh, a crane hands the blocks. So the crane comes, whoop, and the child takes it and we do whoop, whoop, whoop. And then the crane gets stuck. And the block is away from the child. At that moment, the child wants the block to keep going so that he can put the next uh, uh, the next uh, uh, Lego uh, on 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 the pile. Now, let's say the child just by accident touches our hand while doing this, and we say, "Okay, let's dial down the expectation and 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 treat this touch as if it means." keep going crane and we hand the, the 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 lego to the child and then we do it again the crane gets stuck again and then the child might learn that by uh, tapping on our hand 
the crane gets unstuck. So you see now we have a repetitive uh, interaction, but it's a little bit more elaborate. If you want to dial up while doing it, we might fall on the ground in a dramatic way and the child might help us get up or help us get the piece, you see, but now we have already a more elaborate back and forth. So in, in the example of this child, the, 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 we dial down by participating in very small dosages in a repetitive behavior, which is always easier, and gradually we try to dial it up. One other part of that strategy is to uh, follow a child's lead in a way, in what you just described. Can you say a little bit more about that, why that's important? Sure. Well, many of the re relation to developmental models, and, and most notably the DIR floor time model, coin, I think really coined the phrase, follow the child's lead. From our perspective, how we understand that is we're always looking for ways to engage a child in this back and forth, this reciprocal back and forth in context conversation. It could be conversation with actions, conversations with words, no matter what it is. But we want to do that and we want to do it in a way that a child can. So if a child, um, if we if we uh, see the child and, and we see a castle, we could think, boy, we, we could have great play with the castle. Hey, Johnny, come over here, come play with the castle. But Johnny's over with the blocks. So we get Johnny over to the castle, but he has no interest in playing with it. So he goes back to the blocks. We join Johnny over at the blocks and then we're building a castle made out of blocks, or we're doing as Moshe said, stacking blocks, depending on where the child's at. But when we child, follow the child's lead, what we're doing is we're joining an activity that the child is already doing, they're already motivated to do it, and they're involved in it. So the context from their perspective is, I'm playing with these blocks because I've chosen to play with these blocks. We are going to have, another person is going to have much better success joining the child's play and what they're already motivated to do and what they're already doing. In order to, because what we're asking of them is to make, Make it more difficult to do what you do by adding context to it. And that's what you do with parents that you're in treatment with, is to help them with that yes. idea. Mm -hmm. Yes. Help them, teach them specifically how to follow a child's lead, what that means, what that looks like. And then once they're there, what do they do? Because everybody can join a child. Anybody can join a child playing. But keeping that child in play, that's the trick. And in, in, in to, 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 to emphasize that two benefits to, to following the child lead. One, a child is highly motivated to do what the child is doing. So we want the child to be motivated because it's so hard for the child to engage in back and forth and, and they will do it only if they're highly motivated. The second reason that it's so important is what Josh mentioned, um, is that what by following the child's lead, we in a way dialing down the contextual load uh, requirements because in terms of, think about uh, uh, the fact that contextual thinking is basically the ability to have something in mind and then to change it. So for example, if we have a conversation, I say, oh, it's really cold today and you, you answer to me, no, actually I, I think it's quite warm. At that moment, I need to change what I was going to say based on what you told me. And this is very hard for children with autism to do to change the, the mindset. So by joining what the child is already doing, we make the task of contextual thinking easier for the child. So then the child can respond more easily uh, to whatever we are presenting. Mm -hmm. So increasing the opportunity for 
success for the child exactly. to start mm-hmm. to um, exercise more behaviors that reflect contextual thinking. Yeah, and we and we and when we say follow the child's lead, we mean very specifically and literally follow the child's lead in what they're doing. And a great example of that is I think everybody might be familiar with the sit and spin toy, where you sit you sit down on it, cross legged, and then you spin around. Um, when it, when that toy is brought out and the parents see it, they say, oh, Johnny, here's Johnny again. Johnny, come, go on the sit and spin. And we try to get Johnny on the spin. But he has no interest in doing it. He resists and he runs away. And then a little bit later, the sit and spin is still out and Johnny goes over to it again. And I tell the parents, wait, let's see what Johnny does. And Johnny kneels in front of it and spins it and stops and really looks at it spinning. And I tell the parents, now, what is Johnny doing? Well, I don't know. No, what is he doing? He's spinning. What is he spinning? The sit and spin. That's right. That's what he's doing. When they saw the spin, sit and spin, they thought, oh, playing with the sit and spin means go, going on the sit and spin and spinning. So if I want to join Johnny in playing with the sit and spin, I need to get him on there spinning. And then that will be playing with the sit and spin. But I say, well, no, he's spinning it himself. That's how he's playing with it. And that's what we want to join. That's what Johnny finds motivating. And then we spin it. And very dramatically, we say, stop. And we slam it down. <gasps> oh, Johnny really liked that. And he laughed. And we did it again. And we join him in the spinning of the sit and spin. We're not on it yet. And maybe we'll never be- get on it. But in following a child's lead, we mean and we teach parents to watch their children first, really take a look at it and be very literal and descriptive. What is the child doing with that toy? Because it might not be what we intuitively think should be done with that toy. But the child is doing something with it with purpose. So parents develop a real ability to get in sync with where their child is right in the moment. Yeah. And it seems like that actually then uh, increases the amount of opportunities that parents will have with their children to help them with this contextual thinking. Mm-hmm. Would, it, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the goal. The goal is to, the, the, the goal, our goal is to coach or train or teach uh, the parents or other people who might uh, take care of the child to engage the, the children in this kind of back and forth exchanges. As I said, different levels, depending on where the child is, with the idea that the more it happens, the more uh, there is more mastery. Mm-hmm. One thing, uh, Dr. Stuhl, that you'd done in one of your earlier examples was to make some sounds as you were uh, talking about that hypothetical child and moving the block and your beeps and your bops. And I believe you call that cross-modal synchronicity. Can you all talk a little bit more about that and what that is and how to use that with children who have autism? So cross-modal synchronicity, or, or maybe we'll start with uh, nonverbal expression. Uh, we are all... Um, uh, responsive to sounds. Uh, for example, uh, kids typically respond to, uh-oh. And many parents do that because they notice kids actually respond to it. Uh, when you play with a baby and that disability starts really, really early, you can you can talk to them, but probably they won't understand you, but uh, you might make sound like, blue, 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 and the child might make kind of move his head back and forth. Or, or, or the child, uh, or you might stick your tongue and the child will stick uh, uh, his tongue back. So a lot, we are born with this kind of an ability to uh, uh, be very sensitive and receptive to qualities of sound, qualities of movement, 
And when I say qualities, I mean things like uh, in, in scientific literature, when they talk about it is, for example, the rate of acceleration of the voice. Like, whoop! Uh, it has a, a meaning and it uh, uh, corresponds to a lot of, uh, we, we attend to it and it's very meaningful. Cross-model synchronicity refers to the idea that there is a correspondence between sound and movement. So for, uh, you know, when you observe, for example, uh, uh, slow motion uh, 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 video of a mother and an infant, and you can see that they are almost dancing, they seem like they are dancing together. Movement leads to movement. Uh, uh, sound leads to sound, and the cross-modal synchronicity is, for example, if the parent, if, if the parents make a, oh, the child might jerk his movement a little bit in the same with the same qualities as the sound of the same qualities of acceleration and volume, so to speak. So this is something that we are all born with. The wonderful news is that typically kids with autism have this ability or this sensitivity uh, to sound and movement relatively intact. So we can, we can uh, leverage this ability in order to support uh, reciprocity. So when we interact with a child, we use a lot of these sounds and movements because kids uh, respond to them uh, so well. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe a couple of examples of what that looks like. So uh, um, there, there's playfully taking things from children is a great way to engage them. You know, sometimes sneaking up on them, not scaring them per se, but but letting them know, hey, I'm I'm coming after you. I'm going to come and get your toy. So instead of just going over them, going over them and taking it, well, they would probably have a reaction. To anybody would, hey, where's my toy? Come on, I'm I'm going to start crying now, or I'm just going to retreat or not do anything. But if I come over and say, whoa, as my hand's getting closer, whoa. And then the child's looking up and they see my hand moving and they, with a smile on their face, jerk away. And I, oh, and then with big affect, I, oh, you got me. I'm caught. So there's two, there's two cross-modal synchronies. The first one is, what? That's the first one. And then they respond and I jerk back and attune to them. Whoa, you got me. And then I, I start to do it again. So we add sounds to our movements and our gestures to do exactly what Moshe said, to, act, to activate that mechanism that seems to be intact in a child's thinking so that they respond. So that they respond and really spend that extra time to say, hey, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? What should I do now in context of this hand coming towards my truck, my favorite truck, and that sound, whoop, I think it's coming closer. And that hand just might grab my truck. I need to do something. And all I had to do was make that sound with my hand going towards it. What I'm noticing as uh, here as we're recording that there seems to be another modality that you're using very much and is your um, uh, ver uh, facial expressions yes. mm -hmm. too. So we not only have movement, we have sound, but we also have visual input then in terms of uh, of how you're feeling or what we're saying. Sure. So is that exactly. so trimodal? Mm -hmm. At least. Exactly. And, 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 and what we found is that very expressive, you know, it's like being clear. You're clearer. Let's say if you don't like some, if you like something, you say nice versus nice. That makes a, a world of difference. So we always use uh, uh, the nonverbal aspects or the 
cross-modal synchronicity to amplify and clarify anything we say. So let's use uh, the example of, 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 of talking when we want to encourage uh, kids that have some verbal abilities to, re- to, to engage in more verbal reciprocity with others. Well, one advice we give uh, parents is say, uh, and this is kind of uh, dialing down, uh, uh, say things, uh, your sentences should be short. Use very few words. But the other one, use them with great expression. And when you use great, with great expression, kids, people, everybody, you understand it better. And if you have difficulties with communication, the very clear message comes across uh, much, uh, it's much more likely that for it to come across and for the child to capture the child's attention so that the child respond uh, to it. So we say to the parents, everything you say, say it with an expression. Short, but big on expression. Short, uh, short sentence, but big on expression. In our experience, clearly, kids respond much more often and in context when we shorten the sentences but say it with the uh, nonverbal, uh, uh, we, we accentuate the meaning with nonverbal expression. Just out of curiosity, do you find you're talking about big expressions and maybe increasing the volume of your voice? Does the reverse apply as well mm-hmm. to reduce? So say a little more Absolutely. about that. So, so, so some children can be very sensitive to loud sounds, fast movement. They might have difficulty reading the emotional expressiveness of a face. There's a lot that, that, a lot that is communicated via our facial expressions. And some children with autism might have difficulty. So it does mean that we have to dial down. We go a lot slower. So say the block, so, so say the block handing. Um, an example. If we intrude too quickly and add too much sound effect, the child will retreat. But we we do next to nothing, and then we take a block and we just place it next to the child slowly. Now, you can't see me. And, uh, we're just talking, but my motions are very slow, and I'm only moving my hand. And that's all I do, bring the block to the child. Then after a while, the child feels safe. This isn't too much of an intrusion. I can handle this. And we start there. Again, our goal is to build it so the, so the child doesn't live in, in a bubble, a very quiet, calm, and serene environment. Um, but we need to start where the child's able to tolerate it. So absolutely, you're, you're very smart to say that. The, 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 the opposite definitely applies. If it's too much for a child, we get way much more quiet and a lot slower. It's like still variation is important, but the variation would be much smaller in order to have the same effect. Well, thank you for talking about those uh, strategies and techniques that parents and other caregivers can work with children. I'm sure a lot of people are interested in uh, learning more and how they may get help for a child they know or or is their child. So can you talk a little bit about Together for Success and how you work with families? Sure. Well, our Together for Success program, as we said at the beginning, is our early intervention program for toddlers and preschoolers. And it does both um, evaluation and assessment and intervention. But our evaluation and assessment um, we're looking to assess the child's strengths, what they're capable of doing, where they are across a few different developmental developmental domains, such as the domain of communication or the world of ideas and pretend play. Um, where are they with this reciprocity and this engagement? Um, and, and the fourth would be um, um, regula- um, regulation, emotional and behavioral regulation. So we look for what the strengths are first, what they're able to do, and then where the challenges are. What's missing? What doesn't seem to be developing um, typically? What seems to be delayed or just not there? 
also part of that report is what do we do? How do we understand these delays um, and this atypical development um, in terms of what, what we know is optimal and good child development? And what are we going to do about it? And the second half of the report is basically everything in the kitchen sink and the different techniques that we'll use. So the report becomes more of a roadmap. Our assessment and evaluation is to help us understand where the child is, what their challenges are, and then what the roadmap of intervention would look like. Because the next thing we do is the actual intervention. And we do it through weekly coaching sessions, we call them, where the child and parents come in and through the vehicle of play, which is most available to these young kids, we, we test out, try, tweak, and finesse and get better at the techniques or strategies to use. How slow do we need to go? How fast do we need to go? What kind of affect is good? What games or activities seem to really work well in getting that engagement going? The goal is to tease out these discrete techniques and then help the parents see how they can implement them throughout the day. What we don't want to do is give the parents a new curriculum of four hours of play work to do that they have to fit into an already busy day. Because the majority of families that we work with have other siblings as well. So there's a lot going on, especially in this area. So we know that the, the best parents would start and it would do it for a little bit, but eventually it wouldn't, it wouldn't be workable. So instead we say there are already opportunities for interaction throughout the day. When a child wakes up, during meals, going to and arriving at places, coming home from places, as well as the opportunity for play and, and the daily routines and rituals. So how can we embed and use the techniques we know have been effective in our office throughout the day? So we teach the parents, get them skilled in using cross-modal synchronicity and using more gestural communication through the coaching play sessions. And then we help them see how they can implement it at home during mealtime. So instead of giving the child their bowl of uh, Cheerios, which they expect, they've now learned to give the child a bowl, empty bowl and smile at them pleasantly. Now, child's like, where are my Cheerios? What am I going to do? Well, then the child hits the Cheerios or looks up at mom, looks up at mom with a meaningful look. Boy, isn't that wonderful when that happens? And then mom go, and goes and gets the Cheerios. Now, we learned in our play sessions to do that playful obstruction or that playful missing of things when we were building with Legos. But we realized, boy, look what happened when he expected something and he didn't get it. Look what he did. Where can we do that at home, mom? And then we realized, boy, breakfast time would be a great place to do that. So the goal of the coaching sessions is for us to identify the techniques that work and then help the parents embed them into the child's daily life. The last part, and this is an important part, we, we work for four-month blocks of time. So we meet every week for four months. And after four months, we want to assess again. We want to see three things. Is the child making progress in a way that Dr. Stuhl and I expect to see the child making progress? Second, are the parents understanding what they're saying? Does this make sense to them? And third and most important, are they reporting back to us that they're able to take the techniques, use them at home, and see the benefit of the work at home? When we see those three things happening after four months, we say, boy, that's great progress. So then we want to know what's next. What goals do we need to finesse? Do we just keep going with what we're doing because we're seeing progress and it's going well? Or do we need to establish new goals because such progress has been made? But every four months, we want to kind of put that stake in the sand to say, where are we at? Great. And what's the age range of children that you'll see? Well, as, as, as young as they can come, you know, one, one years old, um, certainly, but pr pretty much up to about age five, right up to kindergarten is, is the area uh, that we're really trying to look at for this intervention program. And I know that uh, parents who have a child who may have autism experience a lot of stress. And I just was wondering what you all do to address that when you start working with a family. I think that uh, the main thing is that sometimes there is kind of dichotomy. Uh, parent, parents go through 
sometimes evaluations and there is a question, is it autism or not autism? And this is extremely stressful uh, for the family. And the first thing that we uh, emphasize with, for the parents is beyond the label. Is it autism or, or, or Asperger, which is not used anymore, or whatever else? We, we help them see the child's strengths and weaknesses. So we go beyond dichotomy of yes, no, to understanding, okay, this, 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 these are the child's strengths. These are the weaknesses that we need to work on. The second thing is that uh, I think that it's very important in order not to feel overwhelmed is for you to feel that you know what you're doing. And one of the important things that happen often is when parents feel successful in, in interacting with their kids, they see some progress that is a tremendous help uh, in terms of not feeling overwhelmed, in terms of feeling determined and, 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 and in charge of the situation. Also, you know, it's kind of almost, uh, uh, we all know that family, family's well-being is the first priority. And we try to find ways, each family is unique and different, but we always try to find ways to help the child and the family uh, feel calmer, feel more collected. We learned a long time ago that you can't work with a family or with a child if they are overly anxious, if they're overwhelmed, if, they're, if stress is too high. So this is always uh, uh, the, the goal number one. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stuhl and Mr. Metz for coming on the Nurture Podcast. And I hope we'll have you back again sometime to talk more about how we can help kids with autism. It's been great. Thank you well, so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Moshe Stuhl and Mr. Joshua Metz from Family Compass. If you'd like to get more information about their Together for Success program, please go to the Family Compass website at www.familycompass.com. If you'd like more information about this episode, including some additional links to information mentioned in our conversation, please look at the show notes in your podcast app or go to the Nurture website at nurturepodcast.com backslash episode two. I'm especially interested in your feedback. There are contact forms on my website, or you can email me at mark at nurturepodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I can be found at Nurture Podcast. Again, that's at Nurture Podcast. Also, I'd love to hear from you about other topics you'd like to have discussed, any particular guests you'd like me to have on, or if you're interested in being a guest yourself. I'm interested in having parents come on the show, as well as other early childhood professionals. In addition to listening to this show via the website, nurturepodcast.com, you can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or through your favorite podcast app on your iOS or Android device. For example, there is the podcast app on Apple devices and the Stitcher radio app on Android devices, among many others. Search for Nurture Podcast and then click the subscribe button. Again, thank you for listening. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. May you and the young children in your life continue to thrive and be nurtured.